All right. Well, hey, everybody in the room, and if you're watching at home, I point at this camera. I have no idea if that's the one that's facing me or not, or if it's this one. I don't know. We're low tech. We don't have a little light to tell me. But uh, we're doing communion today at the end of our uh, time together. So if you're at home, at some point while I'm chatting, if you don't already have a snack or something to drink and eat in front of you, when you get bored... Go grab a little snack and come back. Maybe it'll be better. Uh, if you're in the room uh, at some point where you start to drift off and think, wrap it up, Ryan. If you don't have one of these, you can go and grab uh, there on the tables in the back. And then at the end, we'll have somebody bring it by. Now, some of you that are really eager for communion, I'm going to say this now uh, because you will jump the gun later on and then you'll regret it because these little puppies are a joy to open. Okay. So much fun. <laughs> so here's the deal. When you open this, there's, a, there's two layers on the top. One's like a little cellophane. I don't know how, we're not going to zoom in, but you want to pull that cellophane layer off first. It's really thin. Then take the lid off the juice. If you take the lid off the juice, you get no bread. There's just no way to reopen it, and you'll be very frustrated and probably leave the church, okay? So <laughs> do that, okay? So well, we're going to do that later on. I don't know what to do with this, so I'm going to go set it over here. All right. Uh, listen, we're wrapping up a series called Hope is uh, Open. My name is Ryan, the lead pastor. If you're a guest this morning, if you stumbled your way in during this uh, Thanksgiving week, thank you for being here. As, and, and I'm glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, maybe somebody invited you to come and be a part of this. Uh, that's great. You're going to get a big idea of where we believe we're headed as an organi- organization, as a gathered church for the next 10 years. And uh, if you're a part of like any kind of strategic planning and any kind of organization, you know that there is a measure of foolishness in thinking about 10 years from now. But we have a big dream, and we believe that we can focus and think about three years and one-year plans and those kinds of things. But we want to share with you, I want to share with you today what that is. And it's kind of a culmination of the last seven weeks. Uh, You'll hear things that we talked about over the last seven weeks and how it all fits together. And some of you are probably like, finally, maybe this will make some sense. We put it all together. Uh, I don't know. But uh, that's what we're going to do today. This series, we've been focusing around this thing that Jesus said, this statement, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And we've been imagining what would it look like to ground our understanding of God and faith and church in this big word of peacemaker, peacemaker. That the language of faith, the language of religion has at times in in recent history and throughout history, it's like pushed people away. And we've we've gotten used to words and words have been used to kind of control and manipulate people. And what if we could reframe it all around this idea of the call of the Christian life, right, that word, into a life that builds peace in the world. And peace is not just absence of conflict. Peace is actually this idea of wholeness, justice, mercy, humility. We've talked about these things. So that's what we want to do today. And uh, so we're going to jump in. Uh, Listen, about a few years ago, not a few years ago now, it was like 20 three years ago now, 22 years ago now, I graduated. And uh, I graduated from, uh, with my master's degree from a wonderful school, a little school in Massachusetts called Harvard. And I was super excited. And I went to this school thinking, this is going to set me on a path. Uh, I'll go into debt and it'll be wonderful. Uh, and, and this will be worth it. And so the plan was move the family from uh, my, where we were working. And I was an undergraduate work. We were doing school in Springfield, Missouri, the most affordable place to live in the United States of America, to Cambridge. Massachusetts, not the most affordable place to live in the United States of America. But we said, let's move out there. It'll be great. And so we move out, go to school. The plan was do the master's degree, get into a PhD program, work with students and young people, and then teach college and shape and fashion thinking around religion and ministry. That was the plan. I never thought I would do this 
right? I never thought this would be my job. I never thought I would be a senior pastor at a church. And some of you are like, you probably should have stayed with that plan, Ryan. That might have <laughs> saved all of us a heartache. But uh, this is where I am. But what happened was, what led me on this path uh, was I, so, so uh, you finish up, you're finishing up your semester, you start the process of applying to PhD programs. So I'm applying to programs, and my advisor is this kind of world-renowned scholar in Jewish history and theology and Judaism, and, and he's, he's, he's working with me, and he, he sees the schools I'm applying, sees my recommendations. A direct quote from this man, who turns out, in my opinion, not to be as smart as everybody thinks he is, he said, you will definitely get into one of these programs. <laughs> it didn't happen. That's why I say I don't know if he's as smart as everybody thinks he is, right? But it didn't happen. So I applied to all these programs, and then for the next two months of my life, I waited to know where we were going to move next. Where was, what was the next step? Here's the plan. This is where we're going. This is what's going to happen. How, how's it going to work out? And one after the other, I got the letter that said, thanks, but no thanks. One after the other. And so all of a sudden, here I am, I'm graduating, and I have no future. And so we're all gathered there in Harvard Yard, which is this really pretty spectacular experience is, is commencement at Harvard you, they bring all the schools together because Harvard's one university. It uh, doesn't matter what school you're in, whether you're in the law school or theology or medical or if you're medicine, if you're in you know, education, master's programs, or if you're in the undergraduate. You all come together for one big commencement in the yard, and then you go to your schools. And it's this huge part. And I'm just going to tell you, that was the most depressing day of my life. Legitimately. Isn't that crazy to think about? And I know some of you are like, that's a first world problem, Ryan. I totally get that. But in that moment where I was in my life, 22 years old, I didn't know what was next. Why did I just go into all this debt for? Why did we move all across the country? This isn't the plan. This is what, and I didn't know. I, don't, I couldn't tell you much about that day because I really was genuinely so depressed. And I just felt like a failure. I wanted any degree than the one I was getting. I wanted to be any place than where I was. It was hard to even smile for pictures. And I felt on that day kind of like a stalled car on the side of the road a really expensive stalled car on the side of the road. <laughs> like one that I had just signed the lease for and I was really excited and this car was supposed to take me someplace and it was just stalled and it was, what was it all for? Because I really didn't care much about stuff like that, like, you know, prestige. and I didn't really care, but it was like, this was the path. This is what I was gonna do with my life in that sense. And, and the opportunity came. And, and as I look back on that moment in my life, I think it's a common moment that a lot of us feel and experience at some levels where we just feel life stalled, right? It's, it's not that it's bad, right? I mean, I wasn't in a bad place. Let's face it. I, I mean, I had a master's degree from a great school. Uh, I was going to be okay, right? But I had just stalled. I didn't know where I was going. What was I doing? And, and I realized as I think about that, that all of us, if we're kind of honest, we look at our lives, we have those moments where we just kind of stall out. It's not that the car is unrepairable. It's not that it's, you know, it's, but we're just kind of broke down on the side of the road and we go, what's happening? And, and I think the truth is people as individuals, this happens to us. I think that businesses can go through seasons of that and churches, we all can stall. It's not necessarily that we've done something wrong. I didn't feel like I did anything wrong other than just not being smart enough to get into these PhD programs, you know, an overestimation of my own ability to think, I guess, I don't know. But like, we just stall out, and then we're stuck asking this question, well, how do we move forward? Like, how do we move forward from this? Where do we go forward? Well, you know, the nation of Israel found themselves in this very predicament. They, well, they didn't graduate from Harvard, but they were stalled out, 
right? They found themselves in a place where it was like, what do we move forward to? And actually they stalled for like 150 years. So in 586 BC, 2,500, 2,600 years ago, the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and they destroyed the city because the Israelites rebelled against their, the dominating king of the day. And they came in, destroyed the city, tore down the walls and took away, took captive, uh, forced out everybody, just about everybody, at least the best and the brightest. Took them to Babylon and said, here's where you'll live. And they then lived there for about 150 years. So a group came back 75 years later, but it was about 150 years that they lived in exile, generation after generation, wondering what was next. And in this culture, right, 2,500 years ago, in this culture, uh, your deity's power was based upon your military power, right? So what had been told to the Israelites by the Babylonians was... Hate to break the news to you guys, but your God isn't even real. Your God is so weak, your God couldn't even protect your God's own temple. And, they had, and the Israelites had a way of understanding it that didn't deflate God. They interpreted it as, well, we failed God and we received this as punishment, trying to make sense of their world, which we all do, right? But 150 years they lived. But 150 years after this, this guy named Nehemiah comes on the scene. And there's a book in the Bible named after Nehemiah if you're new to Bible study. And it tells the story of this guy named Nehemiah who was functioning in about, you know, in the middle of the 5th century uh, BC. And he comes in on the scene and his family was probably deported from Jerusalem. Uh, and then he's probably born in captivity, a servant. And he kind of finds his way. But he's, his history is this 150-year stall. And he's actually a servant in the king of, of, the, of Persia at the time, because what happened was the Babylonians lost power to the Persians. The Persians took control. And so now he's a servant in the palace of the Persian king, 150 years. I don't know that Nehemiah honestly had ever even been to Jerusalem. I would kind of doubt it. I would doubt he'd ever been to Jerusalem. You got to imagine, just think, what do you know about 150 years ago in your own, like firsthand knowledge from relatives, let's say, in your own family? I mean, that's it's quite a ways away from our kind of memory. But it's interesting. It says in Nehemiah chapter 1 that Nehemiah all of a sudden, like he just decided to find out what was going on. And he was working in the capital at the time. Susa was the capital of Persia, uh, which is in uh, uh, modern day Iraq. So he sees there and he's kind of wondering like, what's going on? What's going on? And so one of his brothers shows up and he brings him in and, and some other men from Judah, which is the, the nation where Jerusalem sat. And he asks him about the Jews, his people, his ancestors that are living there. 150 years later, they call them the remnant. They're still in their homeland. He says, what's going on there? And they answered him, Nehemiah says, uh, the survivors of the captivity there in the province are in great distress and under reproach. And they said, the wall of Jerusalem has been breached. Its gates gutted by fire. And it's funny that they talk about this like it happened yesterday. <laughs> The first time it happened was 150 years ago. And then there might have been an attempt at a rebuild maybe 50 years earlier than this that didn't go very well, like it was ransacked again. So at best, 50 years. But it's like it just happened yesterday. And it says, Nehemiah says, when I heard this report, I began to weep. And I continued mourning for several days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And in, in Nehemiah's response, I think we learn the first thing that happens when you want to get unstalled. We see that Nehemiah had a burden. He got a burden for his people, right? He wanted to find out. All of a sudden, he was just wondering, what's going on with my ancestors there in Jerusalem? And he asked the question because a burden had welled up inside of him for his people. 
And then it goes on in chapter 2 of this same book, Nehemiah. It says a few months later, Nehemiah is there serving the king. And he was the one who brought the wine out. He was in charge of the wine. So this meant he was the, called the king's cup bearer, right? Which meant they would bring the wine in. He would taste it, make sure it wasn't poisoned. And then if it wasn't poisoned, he would live and give it to the king. And he'd get to do this the next day, right? I mean, it, it was a great job in a sense that he lived within the palace confines. And as far as being a servant goes, good deal. But overall, like you mess up, like you, you displease the king, he'll just kill you, right? And if somebody's trying to kill the king, they got to go through you first, you know, the poison. So it's not like the best deal in the world. And, and so it says he's there in charge of the wine and he took some of the wine and he offered it to the king. But because he had never before been sad in the king's presence, the king asked Nehemiah this question, why do you look so sad? If you're not sick, you must be sad at heart. And this is a very interesting depiction of the king uh, of, uh, uh, of Persia because you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally hear uh, a captive people record such a kind of what appears to be a tender experience, right? But what happens is he just knows it, like, because everybody around the king is always acting like, well, everything's wonderful because they don't want to die. And Nehemiah says, though I was seized with great fear, I answered the king. Now, he's seized with fear because if he's in the king's presence and he looks sad, down, depressed, the king could just be like, get this guy out of here. I don't want anything to do with him. And, you know, at best, he'd never see him again and he'd be cast into a dungeon. At worst, he'd be killed or maybe vice versa, right? And so in that moment, he sees with fear, but he answers the king. He says, I've got this moment. And he's, had, he's got this burden that's been inside of him. He says, may the king live forever. How could I not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates consumed by fire? I think what we see here is that Nehemiah had a passion for his city, right? Not just did he have a burden for his people, but he also had a passion for this place, there was something about this place in his life that he knew his ancestors were there and it was in ruin and he, he had developed such a passion that it actually changed his behavior. He put himself at risk. And then it says the king asked Nehemiah, well, what is it then that you wish? It's a very interesting moment. Like, so now, now Nehemiah is asked like, well, what do you want? What can I do for you? I don't think Nehemiah was ready for this, <laughs> right? Because Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven first, right? Like you could just imagine in his mind, like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. What should I say, God? What should I say? Like the panic. Have you ever done that? Like you have this moment where you're like, uh, you know, so he's praying inside of his mind. He's like, what do I do? And then he answers the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant is deserving of your favor, send me to Judah. Send me to Judah to the city where my ancestors are buried that I may rebuild it. And what we see here is not only did he have a burden for his people, a passion for his city, but he had a vision for his future, right? He could see better for himself. That, yeah, he had this responsibility to care for the wine and take up the wine, but he said, I could see better for myself, and he had the courage to act and to ask. And so what is vision? I like to think of vision as God's preferred future. God's preferred future. God's preferred future for your life is God's vision for your life. God's preferred future for my life is God's vision for my life. God's preferred, uh, God's vision for our church is God's preferred future for our church. And we actually, like, I don't believe that vision is something that just happens and then we live it out and go, that's what God wanted for my life. Like, I, I don't believe that. And you might have even heard people say, well, nothing can stop God's plan for your life. And that sounds wonderful, but it's just not true. Like, I'm just going to tell you that right now because I love you enough. Like, if you're sitting at home and you're thinking, well, God has a plan for my life and nothing can stop it, you're living under a delusion. Because... 
there is a person who can stop God's plan for your life. You know who that is, right? You. <laughs> you can stop God's plan for life. I do believe that no one else, right? I believe we can actually stop God's plan for our life. We can stop God's plan for our future. Like Nehemiah could have been like, oh, that is way too risky. I don't have anything to do with that nonsense. And step out of this preferred vision, this preferred future that God had for him. But he didn't. He stepped into it. And we hear from the story through the next three or four chapters of Nehemiah that Nehemiah gets to go back. It's funded by the Persians. It's crazy what happens. And Nehemiah starts with the walls. He takes on the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the city that rebelled against the prior administration, right, the Babylonians. He rebuilds the fortified walls of this city. And it says in Nehemiah chapter 6 that the work of the wall was finished, and it took 52 days to do. Got everybody there, got it. And ultimately, what we see is Nehemiah had success. That this vision that Nehemiah believed was for his life, that God had for him, that started with a burden, developed with a passion, then he got an idea for it, and then he actually went and did it, made the sacrifices, faced the enemies, did all the work, it became successful. The work of God was completed. And here's the point, and here's what I think is powerful for our lives and for our church, is that when we stall, right, we just can't get the ignition going. I think we see in Nehemiah that a burden, passion, and vision, that's the ignition system for God's successes in this world. Right? It's not just that we say, well, God do this, and then God magically does things. No, God always seeks people who are willing to carry the burden, live out the passion, and see the vision, see the future, and work towards it. Right? That's what God does. When God wants to accomplish God's work in this world, there's always this understanding that God is looking for a willing vessel, a willing church, a willing person to say, I'll bear the burden because I have a passion and I'll believe that God has a preferred future in this arena. So what about us? What about you? What about our church? I want to focus the next few moments that we have together. I'll have you out of here by kickoff. Don't worry about that. Um, uh, which is the four o'clock game, right? Is that the four? No? It's the two o'clock. Oh, what, what time zone am I in? I'm still thinking East Coast. It's two o'clock here, isn't it? Oh, man. We're gonna have to cut some of this out. Okay. So I want to talk about this as it relates to us as a church. Everybody just, if you're at home, just start clapping. If you're in the room, just start clapping like you're excited about it, even if you're not. Just clap. Okay, good. Wonderful. <laughs> if you're at home, you should hear the excitement in the room right now. Everybody's a buzz about this. All right. So here's the thing. All right. I want to spend the next Next few minutes that we have together, very quickly walking through this vision, but I want to start with the burden. It's my belief as we kind of walked through over these last months, really, uh, a year ago, we started asking these questions, like, what is it that God has for us? How do we talk about this good news of Jesus? How do we do this in a way that, that builds on what has happened over the last 24 years? And then we've spent the last two or three months, hours and hours and hours of talking and praying and discerning and working together. As, as a leadership that's here to serve our congregation. And so here's the things that I think you've experienced over these last seven weeks, but I wanna try and distill it and bring it together. The burden. So if Nehemiah had a burden for his people, who are our people as a church? I, we believe that God has given us this burden for those that are spiritually dissatisfied, disenfranchised, and disconnected. That there's something in their spiritual life that says, I'm not satisfied where I am, but I'm disconnected from it. The church has disenfranchised me. 
I haven't given up on the idea of God, but I've given up on the idea that I could actually be part of a community because they won't accept me or because I have to believe all of this or I have to see it this way, whatever it might be. And so there's these wanderings, and we talked about this group that results in the nuns and the nevers and never agains, but that's the burden that is weighing in. And here's the thing. This is an articulation of the burden that started this place. Almost 25 years ago, this place was started with a group of people who sat in a living room and talked about creating a church that neighbors would want to go to. That's a burden for the spiritually disenfranchised, the spiritually disconnected. And we believe that burden is staying the same. And so now we're saying, okay, that burden has put a passion in us for something, right? So right now, what does that mean? Well, 25 years ago, it really did mean like we got to create a church experience that people want to go to, right? I mean, because I don't know if you know this now, but you go look back 25 years ago, like, I don't know how to say this without feeling like I'm being mean. I don't mean to be mean, but I grew up in the church. Remember, I'm allowed to do this. Like, it's my life. Like, church was boring. I just don't have a better way to say it. <laughs> like, church was boring, and it was done in ways that just didn't connect to your everyday life. Like, the music didn't connect to it. The, the visualization of it didn't connect to it. It was just, it was just, it, it just, people were like, eh, I'm out. And so we have this wonderful movement within Christianity of like, wait a second, like how do we adjust our methods and become more modernized in the way we do things? It was beautiful and needed and necessary. And we see that movement happen. And now we have churches all over the world, all over America that have quote unquote modernized their methodologies. So you come in and there's coffee and there's a band and there's lights that move. You know, those lights will move like, it's crazy. And that was important because the big barrier was boredom. For a lot of people, the big barrier was, I don't know, it doesn't have any, I don't get it, right? So now we're saying, okay, well, here we are 25 years later. What's the big barrier for this same group? But, and that's the passion, right? So the passion is to, that we feel God's drive is to share this message of a more Christ-like God. Like to actually think about how do we actually express and understand and, and convey the reality of God in a Christ-like way. Because if our version of God, if what we're teaching about God doesn't look like Jesus, then we have a problem. So how do we do that? How do we shape that? And what that means is how do we then share the good news of Jesus like it's good news for everyone? Not just the people who can believe every doctrine, not just the people that interpret the Bible this way, but how do we do this, right? How do we stop, it? How do we stop conveying the good news as if there's bad news? Have you ever done that? Like, have you ever heard that one? I did. I grew up in that one, right? People say, I want to tell you the good news about Jesus, right? I say, Mike, I need to share with you the good news about Jesus. But first, I got to tell you the bad news. You're going to burn in hell. <laughs> like, okay, can we get to the good news, right? And then we present the good news, right? Now, again, my statement is this. Like, if we're present, like, that's never, like, in a sense, I have to say, wait a second. Is that really good news? Are we presenting a God of love that says, if you don't love me, if you don't follow me, if you don't believe the way that I tell you to believe, then I can't stand to be around you and I have to punish you for all of eternity. There's something about that that we intrinsically look at the life of Jesus and go, oh, hold on a second, it doesn't make sense. And so how do we actually present this good news? Like, it's all good news. You just have to believe it. That's the crazy thing about the message of Jesus, in my humble opinion, is that there really isn't any bad news other than we're kind of under a lie that there's bad news. We're kind of under a lie that we're separated from God. But the good news is you're not. <laughs> and how will they know unless they're told? Right? That's what it says. Now, it doesn't say how will they make a choice. It just says how will they know? 
How will they know unless they're told? I love that that passage does not say, how will they be able to make a choice to burn in hell or to have eternity in heaven? These two places, one's below and one's above. This was the common belief 2,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Like, not even that. It wasn't really. But like, but it isn't how will they make a good, wise choice. It's how will they know the good news of Jesus, that you are loved by God, that you were created by God, that God has a plan for your life, and that religion doesn't matter. That's crazy. That what you do at the end of the day doesn't, you are loved by God. And that love transforms you and affects what you do, right? So how do we do that? And that's the passion that I think this church has been developing and been living out of as I listened and we discerned for a long time. And now we're just trying to say, this is our passion. How do we do that? And now here's how we live that out. And here's how I think this church has always lived it out and why I'm so privileged to be a part of it, right? The way we live out this passion to present the good news like it's good news for everybody is we say things like this. We're a church that looks for wisdom, not answers and rules in the Bible. That the Bible offers us a path of wisdom, that God gives us wisdom through scripture. We see people working out how to live a life that's faithful to love in their time. But if we try to just take the rules of the Bible and apply them to our lives, oh my goodness, the pain that will come from that. And if we try to go to the Bible with our answers, like what should I do with this? Like, should I eat lobster? Find the verse and no. Should I eat barbecue? Find the verse. No. I mean, Colorado's out at that point. I'm going to tell you that right now. So we don't see the Bible as this rule book. We don't see the Bible as a book that has all the answers. We see it as a struggle. And it's the beauty of the struggle. It's about maturity and wisdom and growth. God, as one author put it, is not a helicopter parent hovering over us, swooping down, giving us all the answers, and then swooping out of the way and being angry if we don't get right. No, God is letting us mature as humanity, not just as individuals, but as a whole human collective conscious. So that's one of the things. Another way that we live out this passion is that we love everyone. We truly love everyone by including everyone fully including everyone, regardless of race, gender, sexuality, class, disability, immigration status. Jesus is Lord is what unites us. What unites us will never be our race. What unites us will never be our sexuality. What unites us will never be our immigration status or our class. That it will never unite us. What unites us is that God loves each and every one of us exactly the same. And that what unites us as people in leadership and in work is that we profess Jesus is Lord. Now, we all interpret that a little differently, but that's the first ancient creed. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. In other words, Jesus and his way is what, I got, what guides my life, is where I bend my knee, not to any other leadership. That phrase was definitely developed specifically in political revolt to what Caesar and what, what all of the leaders in Rome were wanting people to do in terms of deify them and follow them. And it was a statement that, no, this is my path, right? And so we're passionate about fully including people, and that costs us. It costs us. So we choose to extend grace and love and mystery, and, 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 and we say we just are gonna, we're always going to err on the side of including people and loving people. Another way that we live this passion out is that we talk about an ever-evolving understanding of God. We're not a static place. This place is not a static, like, we figured everything out about God. Here's the 17 things you need to believe, and then you're all set. And don't ever question them. And if you question them, then you're just going to need to go someplace else. That's not this place. The beauty of this place is we believe that our understanding of God is ever-evolving, that we're learning more and more about God through science, 
We're learning more and more about God through reality, what God has placed right in front of us. If God is the creator of the universe and has established things that create and and is working and sustaining, then we cannot just tolerate science, right? We can actually say science actually reveals something to us of God. And so we get this beautiful understanding, but we ground that evolution in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the eternal Christ, and what we call the perennial tradition. And the perennial tradition is just a philosophical term that is lived out in saying that we're not like, like there is truth that's bigger than any one denomination. There's truth that's bigger than any one religion. And those truths that are bigger than all of us are the perennial tradition, are really the kingdom of God. And so we hold that point because if we don't have a point to stand on, if we just say, well, our understanding of God is always changing, we're just going to float around. So we have to have a point to stand on. And our point is this Christian tradition grounded in Jesus. And that makes us unique. And so that's how we can talk about the good news survey. That's why we can question things and say, is this really what God wants for us? Is this really what, how we should understand God today? And, we also, and what this means is that as a community of faith, we recognize that there is power in mystery and danger in certainty. If we are so certain of everything that we believe in, every way, thing, way that we interpret scripture, there's no room for mystery. There's no room for what we would call faith. And it's when we get certain about something that we start to exclude, that we get angry, that we kill, that we're violent. We see this at all levels. But mystery, right, it just keeps us humble. I, I can't possibly understand the God of the universe. But God invites me to wrestle with the mystery over and over again and to find hope in that. And so I can sit with anybody and talk about understandings of God. And I say, well, I'm grounded in this Jesus way of thinking. So that's my point, but let's talk. This passion lives out to bring the good news like it's good news for everybody. We want our guests and everybody that is like a beneficiary of our ministry, our church together. We want them to experience the core values of who we are as a church. And so we said, what are those things that we believe are our core values that guide us and direct us? The things that make us like, we couldn't, we couldn't do work, we couldn't do ministry, we couldn't exist as a community in any other way because it's just who we are. And we went through this big, long, like, what are those things? And we thought of some of you, right? We pictured faces, like, who are the people that we look at and go, that's crossroads, like, that's the ideal, like, their heart and the way that they've done year after year after year. And these are the things that we said, like, we're fun, like, I just be honest, I made this decision 20 years ago that I was not ever, ever, ever going to engage in this work of faith and religion and church and not have fun doing it. Life's just too short. So we're just going to have fun while we do it. And that may like seem like, like sacrilegious. I don't know, but I just feel like fun is important. Let's just have fun while we do this. We, we value inclusion. And that gets lived out. We value generosity. This church is generous. Our, our stuff, the truck. My goodness, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And and you know this, you all are actually doing more for Stuff the Truck this year than you did last year. Can I just give you a dirty little secret? Like nobody wants to do this, like pastors don't like to do this because it's always up and to the right in church world, like never difficult times. Like, I don't know if you know it or not, but like attendance is down. (laughs) Like if you're at home, like we're not packing the place out, okay? Like attendance is down, giving is down, right? Like that's the reality, folks, okay? Like let's not hide it. Let's not, you know. I have friends that like when they ask me how things are going, I'm like, they're terrible. What are you talking about? 
They can't sugarcoat it. Like there's horrible, I mean, there's very difficult problems. But in the midst of all of that, those of you that are connected right now, and we can talk about a series of vision because the majority of you that are connecting right now believe deeply in what this place stands for. And that's why it's a wonderful season for us to do this. If you're a guest and you're coming into this, you're kind of, I get it. You're like, what does that have to do with my everyday life? Well, not a lot right now. But like you all, we're at like basically the equivalency of like 4,500 pounds of food donated in the middle of a pandemic at like half of our connecting points. Like what we can tell is that if we're lucky, we're having about half the number of people connecting and giving as we had a year ago, but you guys are crushing it. Why is that? Am I that good of a manipulator? I mean, I like to think so, but I don't think so, right? I'm just kidding. Because you're generous, because it's the spirit, it's the core of who we are, right? We're creative, right? I said earlier today, like, uh, how are we meeting next week? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But we're creative enough to figure it out. You've got a team of people that work here that love you so much. They, they, they come to work and they solve these problems to, to bring hope to you and to your families and friends. And so we'll figure it out. We'll be here somehow. That's the, but we're creative. It's a creative. I mean, look at this place. Look at who they hired. You can't say they're not creative, right? <laughs> I mean, you can call it something else, I suppose, but... And wisdom, we value wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is this idea that we, we don't have all the answers. We're growing. We're always learning. We're humble, right? We're the no-know-it-all place, right? That's one of the things we talked about in this whole process. This is, a, this is for this service only, if you're watching right now. I didn't say this in the other ones. Like, one of the things we decided as a leadership team we wanted to promise is that we would have a no-know-it-all policy in our leadership, that we would never hire anybody or we would never put a volunteer in leadership that doubt they knew it all. We don't want that culture here. That's not who we are. We're a wisdom culture, right? It's awesome. And so here's how we're articulating all of our passions in one little statement, right? All of this gets lived out. All these values get lived out is that our passion is to inspire, equip, and encourage everyday peacemakers. That's how we're wording it. That's what we want to do. That's what we want, the core of how we see ourselves for the next 10 years. Now, how does that start? Well, we want to inspire people into their true self, inspire people to accept their true self, that you are an adopted child of God. The Bible or the Jesus word for this is salvation. Like that, we, we want to inspire you to recognize that you are saved from sin. You're saved from the wounds, the things that have happened to you, the things that you have happened to others, the guilt, all of that stuff is false self. All that stuff is not real. The real is the love God has for you. The real is that you are an adopted child of God. And all of the ways we talk about that from scripture are metaphors and images to help you get it. And we need new metaphors and images that make sense to our current minds to help us understand that. And so I don't ever want there to be any mistake that that's, that's where it all starts. It all starts with peace with God. And the reason why we don't have peace with God is because we somewhere have fundamentally believed a lie that God doesn't want peace with us the way we are. And that's just not true. And so we think that there's some bloodlust in God that has to kill animals so that God can be around us. And it's, it's not, it's a lie. And God, all throughout scripture, is trying to break that. And finally, God takes on flesh to try and break it. And we promptly kill God because we missed it then too, right? But God is just always pouring out love to us. So that's where it starts. We want to inspire. And then we want to equip and encourage all ages to live out the sweet 16. I talked about the sweet 16. I don't have time to go over all those. But we just want to equip people to live it out. 
live out these things that Jesus said are the ways of being a peacemaker in the Sermon on the Mount. So here it is, the big, the big vision for the next 10 years. This is where I believe, where we believe a whole bunch of uh, volunteer leaders, a whole bunch of uh, staff that got together and have spent months and months praying and discerning and listening. This is where we believe God is taking us, that we have a vision that by 2031, number one will be a global network that our influence and our connectivity will be around the globe. And I look around this room and some of you are from around the globe. Did you know that? Like you have connections all over this and and you have burdens and passions and we need to be a church that helps fan those into flames. Like where is that? But we, we, we don't believe God's call us just to focus right here in Northern Colorado. We don't believe that's ever been the call of the church. So we'll be a a, a global network of 5,000 peacemakers, right? Now that's just a number, but it's a number we think that is significant. And I'll talk about that in just a second, but just remember 5,000 peacemakers and we're headquartered right here in this building. That's a big deal right now. I just want everybody to know. For us to believe in faith that this building is where we will be in 10 years is a big deal because I don't know if you know, we're in a pandemic (laughs) and everybody is struggling financially. But we have this belief that if we get this in our hearts, we'll be in this building, this campus, and this will be the focal point. This will be a place where amazing work flows out of. It started off as a Northern Colorado statement. And over the last week, I just was burdened with this. No, I'm gonna have this statement of faith that, that, that there were sacrifices that were made and this is the ground that God has given us to do this work. And, and so I'm just believing that. So the 5,000 peacemakers, a global network headquartered right here, contributing. So this is the key word to understand peacemakers, that 5,000 who are contributing. I believe that our touch, the people that are of receiving from us is gonna be far more than that. But I'm talking about 5,000 people contributing, giving of themselves, their time. Time Time means you participate in the vision. Right now, everybody in this room, you're participating, you're giving your time. Because there's something inside of you that says, I'll walk out of here more like Jesus, not because of me, by the way, but just because this is the experience. So you're tuning in, thinking if I tune in, my life will become more like Jesus. I can make some decisions. I'm gonna become equipped to be an everyday peacemaker. So we give our time to that work. It's the consumption. You should be a consumer of your church, right? Again, this is what we say in church growth worlds. Oh, no consumers. We need to have contributors. Nobody should be consuming. Like put your fork and spoon down and start giving. And that's just a way, that's just a way that at times, unfortunately, it gets used to manipulate people to do all the work that needs to be done to grow a nice big church, right? And I'll give you the little dirty little secrets. I, you need to consume it. Like Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Metaphorically, if you're a guest, it's a very weird thing. I get it. But there's a consumption of Christ that we're supposed to do. And that's the role of what we do is we together. So we contribute our time. We come, we participate in things that actually equip us, right? Then we give our talents. In some way, we give our talents. It means to give our abilities to advance the vision. So there's going to be unique gifts that you have that, yeah, absolutely, you should participate in, in ways, you know, some will be greeters and some will work with kids and some will, uh, will, will help care for the facility and, and some will be musicians and some will sing and, and some won't do anything with the gathered church. They'll do all scattered church stuff. That's okay. But you then contribute your, t- your, your, your talents to go bring wholeness in the world. And then we contribute everybody's favorite, our treasure. I don't know if you know this or not, but you really can't do anything without money, <laughs> Right? Like, you can't have a building without money. You can't, it's just the reality of it. So can everybody just breathe a little bit, right? Like, I'm not afraid to talk about money. I'm not afraid to talk about giving. I love giving. It's just money. 
And it's great. Like, you, we can use it to do good things with it. And so everybody, regardless of our time or time, like, we're creating this together by contributing money. Right? There you go. That didn't hurt that much, right? <laughs> Next week will. This one, not so much, okay? So those are the ways in which we contribute. And so we'll, we'll talk about peacemakers in terms of how we track whether we're actually being successful is people that are contributing in these ways. Not If you're only doing one or the other, we're like, eh, I don't know that that fits yet. But we say a peacemaker is actually engaged in all three of these in some way, shape, or form. And what do we want to contribute? In 10 years, what do we want to contribute? I got to tell you this quick. Man, I got to tell you real quick. We want to contribute 150,000 hours and $10 million into peacemaking around the globe and here in Northern Colorado. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to do in 10 years. 150,000 hours and $10 million. And we want to contribute those into things that inspire, equip, and encourage. And we've got big dreams for the next 10 years, big dreams for who we are and why we exist. And really, it's a dream that we move away from the, the idea of being a local church to being a center for hope and healing that has, a part of it is the local church gathering and worship services that are traditional and non-traditional. You know, like if you're, this kind of gathering in, 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 in a big room is not for everybody, right? It, it, you, there's something about your personality, there's something about your history that being in a big crowd like is not good for you. But we've just said, well, this is how we know if we're really successful is if everybody comes to this room. Like some of you, the pandemic has been the best thing for your faith because you've been able to sit at home, participate, grow, and not have anxiety about walking into a building filled with strangers. Now, why in the world do we create a system and then cling to it as if it's gospel? It seems to me that that's a wonderful thing. Like, and so if, if, if being in this room doesn't promote in you peacemaking, then let's figure out another way and let's celebrate that and let's fund that and let's fund things that we don't get benefit from, but others do, right? So things that we dream about in this idea of a center for hope and healing, it's like an early learning center. We know that there are so many families in our community that are desperate of quality, wonderful, caring childcare. And what if we could do that and begin those sweet 16, right? This way of Jesus, this love of your enemy, right? These types of things at an early age and with families and offer that in a, in a beautiful way. We have such a beautiful building. It'd be such a great thing to do. And we're, we're working on that in the background as a church. We're trying to do that. We want to see us be a global peacemaking nonprofit that's functioning and partnering with people around the globe committed to the same things that we are, fueling them. I believe 100% that Western Christianity has a responsibility to share its wealth with the world. I believe that deeply. I'll throw this out there. One of my big dreams and passions for the last five years of my life is this big dream that I'd be a part of a church that every year we gave away a million dollars. That every year we gave away a million dollars to local and global efforts to ending the unacceptables. That that's the heartbeat of a church. That's how generous. Like, and that's just cash out the door. Like, that's not even programs. That's just like, yes, we're going to support people that God has put a, bit, a passion, a vision, has given them a place, and we want to fan that and be generous. We have a dream of an of annual global peacemaking conference, two or three days where we all gather together and hear from people in our community, people in our nation, people in our world that are fighting those those unacceptables, and we celebrate how we're doing it together, and we learn from one another, and we rejoice in what God is doing. We get a bigger picture. We've talked about summer camps and a retreat center where people can come 
and their kids can have an amazing summer. Summer camp has been a huge part of this place, and, and there's this vision to see it grow. Again, all grounded in peacemaking, raising up teenagers who will stand up and fight bullying themselves, because that's not the way of Jesus, right? Core values like that. We talk about a vision and a dream for professional services, like spiritual direction and counseling for those that have been traumatized by a representation of a God that is violent and exclusive and other realities of our lives. Those are the things that we do as a church. And then I talked about this umbrella for 10 nonprofits that grow up out of our church, that you're sitting there in your heart and all of a sudden there's just this passion. We wanna be a church that fuels that passion into existence. You don't need to go out and get a nonprofit number and an accounting department and a marketing department and a copy machine and an office. We have all this shared space here for our affiliates that you come in and you can use it and we'll run that and help you with your payroll and take care of all that stuff so you can focus on what God's called you to do. And we do that together. So here it is. This is what we're talking about. By 2020, 31, excuse me, 21. Yeah, we're going to get it done quick. <laughs> we're just going to receive an offering and be done, right? So here's what we want to do. We want to be a global network of 5,000 peacemakers headquartered right here at Taft Avenue, contributing 150,000 hours and $10 million into peacemaking. And I believe that will make the world a better place. I believe that we can say that our gathering and our work is necessary. And I will gladly give the rest of my life to that, being a part of that, personally, just being a part of that. Because at the end, we'll be welcoming the orphans, (laughs) Well, not just the spiritual orphans, but we'll be welcoming the orphans. We will, be, we will be doing the good work of good religion to care for the widows and the orphans of our world. And we'll ultimately be bringing this kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of freedom to our world. Freedom. Who the Son has set free is free indeed. Free from the lies of this world. Free from an understanding that God is distant and, and can't stand to be around us because of our sin free from the lie that you're of no value because of your immigration status, free from the lie that your sexuality means God doesn't love you and God can't use you, freedom from all of these lies, freedom for everybody. The big question we have in front of us is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And we're going to talk about that next week. But right now, will you grab your communion cup and we're going to play this video and have communion together Please open the, the communion and take it as you want to during this song. What's God inviting you into today? I, I hope that God, you hear God inviting you into this, this big vision. And God inviting you into this next year, how you can be a part of it through our pieces worth the emphasis, what that means. We're gonna talk about that next week. And I hope and I pray that you will hear God whisper, I need to, I need to attend next week. I need to tune in next week. I don't know how we're gonna do this. And I recognize that this is probably one of the foolish things is to lay this out and then bring people to a place of commitment on the Sunday after Thanksgiving in the middle of a community going into red. But I believe in my heart of hearts that nothing, nothing apart from us can stop what God wants to do in this world through us. And if we'll make that commitment, God will do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so whether that's tuning in live, whether that's showing up here next week, whether it's watching it on demand, 
I hope that you are hearing God invite you to understand what's being asked of us as a community of faith for the next year so that nothing, nothing can stop what God wants to do, not even a pandemic, not even a pandemic. So as we sing this song, as you receive communion, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about and see it like this. Jesus is oftentimes referred to as the light of the world. As you take the bread and the cup, imagine light entering into you that you're absorbing and you're receiving and letting light into you. If you're at home and you've got a bagel, some orange juice or a mimosa, whichever, you're imagining and understanding that I'm consuming light, I'm bringing light into me. And then when I leave my home or when I leave this building, I'm gonna keep that light shining through me. That's the point, this nourishment of Jesus in my life this light that shines of peace and wholeness in this world. And I'm gonna let it break into this darkness through me. And this love will cause me to see that we can all be free. And that's the lyric of this song I want you to think about as you have communion. We as a church are daring to believe that we can create a world where we'll all be free. And it might not be in my generation, and it might not be in the next, but maybe it's the next, or maybe it's the next. But God's called us to this moment, and we dare to believe that we can all be free. So just have a moment, think through, and I'll be back to pray for you and get you out of here on this morning where I've kept you way too long.